All right. Hi, this is Alan and Leon. Welcome to episode 14 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest with us. Uh, it's Dr. Gregory B. Sadler. Uh, he is a president and co-founder of Reason.io. Uh, he engages in public speaking, content production, consulting, philosophical counseling, and provides one-on-one tutorials. All of these activities are geared towards making resources of classical and contemporary philosophy available and accessible to non-philosophers, putting philosophy into practice. Welcome, Gregory. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know about, you know, super special guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, but, you definitely have a plethora of credentials, man. It's really impressive. Well, you know, I'm, I'm also old, too, so you, you <laughs> accumulate those things as you go along. I've been teaching for 20 years, you know. Yeah. So after a while, you're, you're bound to get yeah. some of those. <laughs> um, what made you uh, want to originally get into consulting and philosophical counseling? Oh, you know, I, I um, almost everything in my career, I've sort of walked into backwards and not really meaning to. So I was a traditional academic for about 10 years, although not completely traditional because some of those are teaching in a prison. But I was doing the typical, you know, associate or assistant professor thing and, and, you know, being on committees and publishing and all that. And then um, I moved up to New York because I wanted to <clears throat> be with my, at that time, fiance, now wife, Andy Shaka. And I went from being a full-time professor who was up for early tenure and promotion doing, you know, faculty development and administration stuff to being an adjunct. And the idea was that I was supposed to use it as sort of a sabbatical to, um, you know, write my books that I'd been wanting to write and articles. And that, that didn't pan out that way. I did, I did publish a, a bit of stuff, but I, I started, you know, doing a lot more with video. And so, you know, that got me sort of on the map for a lot of people. They'd, they'd watch the, the videos that I'd record. And they'd say, I want to, I want to study with this guy, or I, you know, I, I want to bring him in to talk about things. And I'd already done some consulting work, but not under the rubric of consulting work in my previous academic career. And realizing that I could actually get paid for it and I'd have more autonomy, that was attractive. And then the philosophical counseling stuff, you know, I've always, I've always been interested in philosophers of practical activity. Mm -hmm. So I, although I do stuff, you know, with, with metaphysics or epistemology, I'm really focused on, on ethics in particular. And I'm not, I'm not doing sort of like the analytic meta-ethics stuff. I'm interested in how do you take these, these concepts and actually improve your life or take a uh, working area and make it, you know, more functional. Um, how do you plan out goals? All those sorts of things. And I'm also very interested in, in how organizations work. So I've been doing what, what falls under the rubric of philosophical counseling for quite a while, giving people useful advice and asking the right questions and making distinctions and, and essentially coaching them uh, and not getting paid. So I thought, you know, uh, I may as well get certified and then start start charging for it. Um, in, in part because, you know, you, you, I think you both know the old adage of if people aren't paying for it, they don't value it as much. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I saw it as some, some way of taking the skills that I had and uh, maybe developing them a bit further and, and applying them in ways that would, would help people in organizations. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I really enjoy it, too. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, and what's so cool is that you found the link between obviously philosophy and mental health. So one of the, my favorite videos that I watched that, that I had a chance to watch from you was your video on depression. I liked obviously how personal it was, well, obviously which is the first thing, and then I also liked how how much I felt sort of intimately connected to it because in some way I felt connected to you and your experience of depression, which I feel like is for a lot of people pretty universal. And so I kind of as in terms of philosophical counseling, is that why you? Well, it was your own struggle with depression one of the major sort of sources or foundations for why you kind of became interested in philosophical counseling or just philosophy in general um i would say that's that's one of them another thing that i struggle with equally is anger management <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I do a lot of research on anger as part particularly in uh, ancient and medieval philosophy and, and theology and literature um, and I do a lot of work with clients on, on anger management and, and people say, well, how did you get into it? Well, you know, I needed to, to find some resources for myself and I found them 
in Aristotle or in Stoic philosophy or in other places as well. <clears throat> so I'd say those two kind of go together. And, you know, for a lot of people who experience depression, they often have other things, you know, lurking in the background like anxiety, anger, um, you know, uh, many of them suffer from imposter syndrome. So, you know, these, these uh, dynamics that, as you're pointing out, are really quite common. Um, I, you know, I wanted to understand them better. And, and what I was really surprised by is how much insight ancient and medieval thinkers had on these, these matters, which really shouldn't be that surprising because they struggled with them as well. Mm -hmm. And they were you know, pretty bright and they thought they would apply themselves. It's unfortunate that we're, we're missing a lot of the literature from uh, ancient philosophy because there are, there are actual books that we know out there like on anxiety or on anger mm -hmm. <clears throat> that we just, you know, we only have the titles of. Yeah, uh, we don't have the the full book. It'd be cool if we had them and we could draw on their resources. But you know, if you look at like um, Plutarch's on anger, or on actually on, on lessening anger, or uh, Seneca's on anger, there's you know dozens of of techniques and insights that very often people who I see talking about anger today aren't aware of. So there, there's that. The other thing, too, I'll mention with anger, since we're sort of on, on that thing. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I went to graduate school in philosophy, and one of the things I was really struck by, and I don't know if it's really just you know, my setting that I went into at Southern Illinois, um, the professors and the graduate students, they would get into these shouting matches with each other in the hallways. <laughs> and, and they really you know, lose it in uh -huh. terms of their temper. And I thought, you know, well, I know that I've got problems with anger. I'm a rather thematic individual, you know, to use Plato's classification. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but these people, what's, what the hell's wrong with them? You know, they're supposed to be rational. Mm -hmm. they're, they're all, they all espouse these, these uh, values of, you know, um, civil discussions and debate with each other. So what the hell's going on with them? Mm -hmm. And so that was another impetus to, to learn more about it, just to understand the environment that I was working in. And then, you know, it, it, it applies to all these other venues. You know, there's to go back to the Depression, you know, you, you look at workplaces. Um, one of the things that we know is that many workers are quite disengaged from the work that they're doing. And, and you can, you know, you could blame it on... Um, them being depressed and, and just sort of push it off to one side. But as we know, you know, depression isn't just something that we carry around by ourselves. It's, it's also, uh, uh, it's influenced by the environments that we find ourselves in. So if you, if you assign people work that's rather unfulfilling or forces them into moral injury of some sort, um, they're, they're likely to, to wind up being depressed. A great example of this is, you know, the recent revelations about what happens with uh, content moderation for Facebook, mm -hmm. but also happens for Microsoft and Google and these other big tech companies as well. Um, yeah, those people are pretty depressed, I hear. I read an article about that, actually. Yeah. And, they get, and they get very little support for, um, for you know, addressing that, even just on a day-to-day -day basis. They, they hardly have breaks, you know. Uh, one place they're encouraged to go off for like 15 minutes to a room to be by themselves. How does that happen? How is that healthy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let's put them in solitary confinement for Don't interact with others. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. Well, you know, the idea is they're supposed to like go off and like get their get their crying jag on and then <laughs> wow. get, get back to work. Um, uh -huh. wow. And they have, you know, pretty high quotas of like how much content they have to watch. So, you know, if, if you're doing that, you're you're placing the employees in a condition of, you know, what we've now identified as moral injury, where you're making somebody do things that um, they're not okay with, that, that they, they feel are, are wrong, like, like saying, well, this video, it's, you know, it's pretty awful, but it's not awful enough to uh, completely block it, so we're, we're going to let this one pass. And they have to decide these things, you know, on such a, a quick, um, uh, what would you call it, tempo. Yeah. 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 Um, would you say that it's, uh, I mean, yeah, actually the nature of the job is, is, uh, for moderators especially is, um, it's uh, less than optimal, but, uh, would you say it's also uh, a matter of focus? Like, would you say that it's like the, uh, employee's responsibility to be, um, to attempt to be in the moment, I suppose, while they're working, or would you say that maybe just the, it's the nature of the work that's not, um, 
helping them to get into that sort of frame of mind. Well, are you thinking specifically about this content moderation thing, or are you talking more, more general? Well, um, I guess we could go more general with it. Yeah, I mean, um, sometimes, I, I guess, uh, I mean, I've experienced while working before that my mind would wander while working. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anytime it would be like that, of course, I would not have a great time with what it is I'm, I'm doing because I'm not so engaged with it. But anytime I made like the effort to engage with the work, uh, it actually became more enjoyable. Time would fly. I'd get into uh, a flow state, you could say. And yeah, uh, it, it also depends how challenging it is what you're doing and how fulfilling it is too. Uh, I suppose if it's too easy of a task, um, you may just grow lethargic and not try to yeah, you know, or if you, if you know that you'll never be allowed to do anything else, you know, there's no room for taking on more challenging assignments or yeah, advancement. Right. Yeah. I don't know, you know, the the there's some times when it might be more fulfilling if you have moments where you can actually daydream at work and you, you're not in <clears throat> the moment, you're in whatever imaginations you're having. Hmm. Um, and, and sometimes that could actually work out well for whatever product you're doing. I mean, think about like a couple different cases. So guy who's stuck on, on uh, a factory floor, um, which, you know, I've, I've done before. I used to work on a machine called the blaster and all, all it did, you know, for eight hours straight was, was blast uh, steel pellets against um, wow. die cast aluminum. And, you know, you'd get a break every so often to go underneath the machine and shovel the, the pellets into a barrel. Uh, but for the most part, you're just hanging stuff on 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 racks and letting it go through, and then taking them off racks and packing them. And you know, my mind would wander, and thank God it did because <laughs> eight hours of that crap is, is yeah. pretty mind-numbing. But there could be cases. I mean, so imagine another case where you're like, you're on a team and you're in an office, and I don't know, you're you're like a, a design company, and you let your mind wander because you actually have the freedom to do that at work. You've got all your emails taken care of. You know, there's some pending projects, but nothing particularly pressing. And you let your mind wander, and then you, you eventually come up with something that that you, you're interested in and could could be valuable to the project that you're working on. Yeah. You know, that that could be a case where where it's quite helpful to do that. Um, I, I think there's there's less opportunity for that in many workplaces because things are so managed now. Yeah. You know. And interestingly, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, interestingly enough, a lot of people, like when clients come to see me sometimes, well, not a lot of people. Yeah, so when clients come to see me, a lot of times they come to, um, and they say, well, you know, kind of one of my biggest issues either at work or in my home life is like boredom, you know? They're like, oh, I don't really, yeah. right, I don't really know what to do with that. And so interestingly enough, especially in the context of like, let's say, ancient philosophy, a lot of, you know, kind of the great thinkers would argue that boredom is a necessity for creativity and for also for finding yourself, right? It's sort of for knowing who you are. Are. And so a lot of people, well, the way our kind of, especially our kind of capitalistic or whatever, overly capitalistic culture is structured is that when it comes to boredom, right, it's like a no-no. We tend to run away from it. And so for a lot of people, when they do get these sort of pockets of, let's say, um, pockets of freedom, I guess you can call them, that they don't really know what to do with them. And so a lot of times I work with clients are literally just finding out what it is that they like, who and who it is that they are, and what is it that they could do in terms of their creative parts, right? How is it that they can manifest them? And yeah. so, and yeah, and so just in the context of kind of finding work and, you know, sort of finding meaningful work, I also think that that's important, that a meaningful job is not just one where you're just consistently working on and on and on, but it's also where you have the time to think and to figure out not necessarily just how to be productive in the the context of the job itself but how to make your life better overall where you have this sort of space to breathe yeah i think when it comes to boredom i would make a distinction between boredom and leisure a ancient philosophers said we need leisure mm -hmm. but <clears throat> i don't think that they imagined us being bored in that available time they imagined us you know like whether it's like plato talking about contemplation or aristotle talking about that or um, spending time in, you know, uh, engagement with friends, or um, doing other other, you know, studies or things like that. They imagine that we would be using our downtime to do something that's not not necessarily productive in in the modern sense, but would be productive in in the sense of uh, affecting us in our, our souls. And it could be hobbies, right? You know. Right. 
um, finding out, you know, take the proverbial stamp collector. I, I imagine that takes a lot of time figuring out where these stamps came from and mm-hmm. what to do with them. I, I don't know because I don't collect stamps. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I can tell you, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't been bored for years in part because I have more preoccupations and things to handle than I'm ever able to get to. Yeah. And, and I think back to like when I used to be bored probably over a decade ago and you know when I would actually have to think about okay what am I going to do to fill this time um, I think a lot of people you're right a lot of people come to us and they <clears throat> they don't really have a sense of what they ought to be doing or what they could be doing in order to use the time because you know we, we never get any time back and, yeah. and we're, we're dying at, you know as we speak uh-huh. uh, <laughs> are we? oh yeah I mean, every <laughs> second a little bit closer to whatever whatever death we're gonna uh, <laughs> run into and, and and so you know you think about um, how much time we, we fritter away just trying to find something to occupy ourselves with um, so people do that because they get bored and now we have all this technology that lets us you know lose ourselves in, in binge watching Netflix or playing you know games on our, our phones or um, checking Twitter. Some people check their email obsessively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and none of that's really, I mean, it, it's, it's um, what the ancients would call entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not bad. It's playing around, but it's not something that's really that valuable. Yeah. And so getting people to, to the point where they can start, I guess, you know, sort of trusting the world enough to, to engage themselves with things that are more valuable you know we might establish kind of a hierarchy where like candy crush is probably at the bottom and, yeah <laughs> you know yelling at people on twitter is slightly above that but not not particularly high and and uh you know researching something that maybe someday you'll, you'll write something about or communicate about would be higher up getting people to realize that they can do that stuff and that life in, in in the setting that we're living in, I mean, we're we have a, like an embarrassment of riches. If you want to know about um, Plutarch and his philosophical ideas as opposed to his biographies, um, you have all these internet resources that you could you could use and, and you know, can find his texts for free online, and and you could probably um, find I haven't looked for this, but you could probably find a discussion board where other people are talking about it back and forth, so you're not you're not confined to whatever people you're physically surrounded with. Um, and you could be doing that on, on your off time, but most people don't, you know, most people it's, um, you know, it's, it's watching essentially mass produced entertainment stuff or it's, uh, you know, finding other things to do. And, and this is going to be a real big problem for us, um, as a society fairly soon because, you know, with, with, uh, unless we have a, a, a big catastrophe, AI robots and and uh, logistics are going to you know produce massive unemployment, yeah. and so we're going to have to figure out well what the hell are these people going to do all day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I, no, go yeah, because one thing that's a major issue and it's been an issue for a long time. It's probably going to get potentially worse is that we're we're basically a spectator culture, and yeah, yeah, yeah and most of us aren't. Um, trying to how should i put this like to to get the glory to be the ones who are kind of in the creator seat and uh, offering uh, some kind of value or creating something yeah. um yeah so they prefer to escape right yeah. so uh, uh, that's that's the main issue yeah there's a lot of consumption of um of information a lot of stimulus a lot of short-term gratification yeah. and the thing is um I like that we're talking about what to do with the leisure time, right? Which is like it's what we're doing right now. Actually, you can you can argue we're offering value by one discussing this, really? and two in yeah. general, um, like the videos that you do. That's an offering of value. That's something that you do during your uh, leisure time, and it's something that is good for other people. Of course, yeah, if they watch it, they're consuming it, but you can argue the quality of what it is that they're consuming and the rigor of thought they'd have to put in to kind of process what it is you're saying is on a higher level than those. There's that, and there's also the fact that I often tell them, don't substitute the videos for actually reading the text. You know, the video is supposed to be a complement to the text. So hopefully at least half of them go and 
you know, read the Aristotle or, or Cicero or whoever. And then, yeah. and, and then I think we can also argue that your videos just like I obviously hope ours. So then just like when it comes to sort of therapy, when it comes to philosophical counseling, the whole point of mm. it is to not or to discontinue becoming a spectator. Because the point of any sort of good, let's say, treatment is for you to help the person become their own therapist. And for them yeah. to right, for them to kind of go off on their way and to not really need you anymore. So unfortunately what does happen a lot of times is because I mean obviously we are in a sense very overly dependent creatures. And I think this as a whole, myself included. So what we tend to do is we tend to sort of view this not just as entertainment but as just something to kind of soothe ourselves right sort of intellectually emotionally and we kind of just get stuck in this okay you know i'm going to come and i'm going to sort of let's say i'm going to go to treatment i'm going to kind of vent and complain about my problems i'm going to sort of i'm going to watch these videos right to sort of get intellectual stimulation to learn a bunch of things probably never going to use them right all for kind of entertainment and for self-soothing purposes so i think that yeah. a lot of what we do is we kind of push people let's say whether clients listeners right in order to actively use the ideas that we talk about to let's create more fulfilling lives for themselves yeah right yeah i think that i think that's right ideally you know yeah, I mean, yeah ideally mm -hmm. a lot a lot of uh dealing with clients is you know we talk about it being dialogical so there's this entire like well what are you doing today you know and i've got this experience and all, all those sorts of things and if we strip them away um, we might not actually lose that much, but they do take up a good bit of time. But they have the they have the function of establishing trust, and right. and that's important. That, I mean, that's actually important too in the classroom. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a, a a lot of good discussions out there about why you should be engaging your students rather than simply you know yep. um, putting material out there. You know? mm -hmm. And so, and Greg, I think I really do have an important question for you. So in, ter okay. in terms of philosophy, right? I mean, a lot of people would sort of conceptualize, not a lot, some people will conceptualize it as just pure mental masturbation. And I was wondering from your end, how is philosophy, whether ancient, modern, some combination, how has it helped you become a more autonomous person? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that's a, a really great question. Um, and I do want to come back to the like you know critique of philosophy part. I hear you. But so for for me personally, I have found um, I'm I'm an eclectic. So so although I've gone through phases where I like you know was totally into Nietzsche and trying to live as a Nietzschean, or totally into Sartre and trying to live as a, a, a you know, or totally into Thomas Aquinas for a short short period. Um, I, I've become an eclectic, and, and it's it's because I, I I find that there's all these useful perspectives or distinctions or you know sort of arguments that you can have with yourself uh, almost like uh, you know discussions that that you can you can memorize and then and then bring to bear and they help me with uh, a lot of my personal problems uh, you know I mentioned the anger management thing um, it's also helped quite a bit with with depression I, I remember you know and sometimes it's because of the content and sometimes it's just the activity of thinking about it. Like I remember going through a bad breakup in graduate school and, uh, you know, riding my, my bike home to, uh, uh, where I was living and thinking about the mock Shaler text that I had been just studying. And Shaler's, you know, an ethicist, very interested in, in philosophy as something living. And I found, I noticed that, um, the, the act of like thinking about what Shaler was, was saying, which didn't bear directly on my situation, but you know, in, in sort of a tangential way, um, it made me feel less sad because less of me was occupied with how terrible this this ultimately rather yeah. trivial breakup uh, was. Um, and so there's there, there's there's all sorts of things like that where you know since since I've been probably I would say since I was a teenager I've been finding bits and pieces of. Um, philosophy broadly construed uh, and, and using it and experimenting with it. And I think a lot of philosophy, when it comes down to it, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating the experimental philosophy movement because I think that a lot of the work that they do is kind of, you know, slipshod. Uh, and the studies, you can really call them into question, like where they, sh you know, show that because people, you know, uh, try to find, you know, the, the quarter in a, a phone thing that we don't have virtue or anything like that. So it's the same sort of bad science journalism that we see. Yeah. But I think that experimenting with philosophy, making it experiential is incredibly important. And what's really cool is that 
throughout the history of philosophy until fairly recently, most of the big names in philosophy adopted a similar attitude. Even people that we often teach as if they didn't, like say Descartes mm -hmm. or Hume. Descartes and Hume, if you actually read their texts closely, they're saying, hey, try this out. I mean, if you think it's, it's, it's BS, well then, you know, uh, I, I guess I'm wrong about this, but but actually, you know, the Cartesian meditations, you're supposed to go through those and, and meditate in that way and have a certain kind of experience. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's been lost in academic philosophy. So going, you know, going back to that question of like mental masturbation, I would say that half of the people, and this is just a rough guess, mm -hmm. half of the people who are in philosophy positions right now um, whether they're adjuncts or, you know, uh, lucky enough to have a tenure track job, are probably mostly engaged in mental masturbation, mm -hmm. and are not not doing their students any favors by the way that they they teach. Mm. Um, one of the you know one of the most common comments on my uh, my lecture videos when I was mostly just like setting up a camera and recording my class was, um, you know, thanks for putting this out there, my professor won't answer any questions. Oh, wow. Or my professor's really boring in their presentation and doesn't give examples. Yeah. You know, now I can actually write my paper, take my exam, understand what, you know, uh, uh, Descartes is saying, whoever. Mm -hmm. uh, lots and lots of comments like that. And so, you know, and, and, you know, when I've gone in and watched my peers teach, they've often been quite uninspiring. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of people who act as if philosophy is something that we have and we're the ones who got trained in it and we've got this, you know, precious thing that we're, we're sharing, you know, we're slumming uh, with these undergraduates who aren't going to be majors yeah. and, and we're, we're, we're sharing these, these, you know, pearls of wisdom with them and why aren't they appreciative of it and who are they to, you know, say, well, I don't understand this or this doesn't, you know, this doesn't seem to apply in this case. Um, when really what we ought to be doing, and I actually have, I have a video that's one of my uh, Sadler Soapbox videos where I talk about service classes. <laughs> what we ought to be doing in service classes is saying, here's my one chance to actually engage these people who otherwise are going to not know anything about philosophy, are going to think that philosophy is for jerks, <laughs> and it's my chance to be an ambassador and make a case for why they ought to, after the 15 weeks are done, go on and read some more Plato or read some more Mary Wollstonecraft or, you know, read, read more Hannah Arendt or whoever. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't want to do it, you know. They, uh, they're interested in teaching the majors. Um, they're interested in doing their, their scholarly publication, but they're not interested in, in uh, doing good teaching in the classroom. Yeah. And so, good teaching comes through real engagement, right? I mean, for instance, well, I guess um, if we wanted to do that right now as an example, uh, say we were talking about um, uh, anger, or uh, yeah. say, say I had a breakup or something like that. I was angry at my uh, ex or something like that. I suppose it wouldn't, but uh, if I had to really think about it, um, like there's a quote that comes to mind. Uh, I might not be able to say it verbatim, but I'll try. Um, so, if thou art pained by a thing, it is not the thing itself that is uh, causing you pain. It is your thoughts and interpretations of it that's yeah not that's verbatim, a, but yeah. that's pretty that's pretty <coughs> accurate actually it's close I, I think only that thou art very, pain by a thing yeah. part, but. very very close <laughs> okay 99.9 but right uh, so for instance it it could be like all in my head what if there's just this momentum of um abstract thoughts that maybe because of the emotions i'm feeling in my body or or something along those lines that i might be just thinking things that aren't actually true and then yeah. if i went with those thoughts i would be interpreting i would make all sorts of stories in my head and maybe go along a path i really should not have yeah. but if i understood that what i'm uh, thinking is something of my own creation perhaps i might not take a lot of those thoughts so seriously and maybe i'd engage with that person maybe at a later time in a different way mm -hmm. um it could take you down like a much better path for instance yeah. that's an example. yeah a lot of a lot of things are quite liberatory in that way another another interesting thing that epictetus brings up is um he'll say you know you think you have to respond in this way but socrates didn't so that shows that it's not absolutely necessary that you 
do X, um, you you have some measure of choice in it. And and simply pointing, I mean, it doesn't change people automatically pointing that out. And sometimes they can be like, you don't understand my situation, you know. But um, and there can be some truth to that. But um, oftentimes, pointing these sorts of things out proves quite liberatory to uh, clients in a in a therapeutic situation and to to students, you know. Um, I, you know, I actually had a case when I when I first started teaching. I, I was working in a maximum security prison, and uh, I, so these are all like inmates in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of a hothead at the time, and so um, I had a student in one of my classes. His name is Jarvis, and I was teaching yeah religion and American culture. Which I had to teach philosophy and religious studies classes, so it's kind of a staple class. And he, I don't remember exactly what he said. Actually, I don't even remember the, the, the content of what he said. But he said something. And it was something like really off base. And I said, well, you're wrong about that factually. And they said, well, it's my opinion. Huh? And then I said, nobody cares about your opinion. Oh, oh no. <laughs> the, fact, the fact that it's your opinion and you think that you know, you're entitled to say it just because it's your opinion is a sign of how wrong you are. Mm-hmm. And he got really pissed off yeah. and left. right? Yeah. And then two years later, he came up to me. And he said, you know, um, I got to talk with you. And I said, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> and uh, then he said, you really helped me out that day, um, telling me that my my opinion as my opinion didn't really matter. I started like, you know, I thought about it, and the seller's really ticked off at you. And then after about a day or so, I started thinking about the opinions that I had. It's, he almost went through like a, like a Cartesian sort of thing. You know? wow. I, I called into mind my previous opinions and saw that many of them were you know, wow. not really up to snuff. And, mm-hmm. and, he, and he said, so I started you know, um, on this, this, this path of figuring out what I can actually find evidence for and what I can't find evidence for. Oh, holy shit, and, man. Yeah, and then I was like, well, that's great that that came to that because I was just kind of pissed off at you and, mm-hmm. and didn't, you know, I, I, just, I just shut you down. Mm-hmm. But that's beautiful. Though. Yeah, like, that's like perfect therapy. <laughs> you had one of those, like, Goodwill hunting type sessions. <laughs> yeah. well, this, except this is in a classroom. Yeah. And so I was calling him out in front of the whole class, too, yep. which, is, wow. which is, you know, a dumb I, thing to do. It, it just in, also in general, to, to, even even more dumb in a prison. So, mm-hmm. and I mean, to to his credit, I mean, that's that really shows the ego strength that he had. Yeah, I mean, like, wow, man. Yeah, yeah and and you know, so sometimes things can be liberatory, even though we don't intend them to be. Because I wasn't intending to, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any sort of grand plan in mind of helping this young guy yeah. figure out his epistemological commitments. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want him to interrupt my, my you know, getting through the, the hour, yeah. you know, and get bogged down and stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I should admit, too, that, that many of my interventions have not been like that. They've actually, in retrospect, been kind of dumb on my part. So. Yeah. And so what have you learned about, it? like, um, let's say just anger in particular from ancient philosophy? What have you taken away from it? Oh, well, I mean, so again, this is something that, that CBT and, and other uh, approaches also indicate to us. Um, our emotions are not things that simply happen to us or that we have no control over. The ways in which we think about things uh, plays a major role in our emotions. And emotions have a cognitive component to them. They're not just effective or, or uh, you know, action-directing. They, they have they have thoughts encapsulated in them. So like Aristotle, for example, you know, he gives a really great definition of anger in Rhetoric Book Two. And and each part of the definition clues us into one aspect of anger. So he, he talks about it as as being um, uh, a desire for retribution, timorasis in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes the word time, which includes this notion of honor or social standing. So, you know, it, it's a desire to restore social standing or, or you know, a set of expectations um, based on some sort of slighting, an mm-hmm. oligoria. And he, he break, you know, breaks it down into several different kinds, and then he provides a lot of examples. Like, if somebody makes fun of philosophy, that can be, I can take that as slighting, you know, mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm in the wrong disposition. Um, Sliding has to be viewed as being um, inappropriate or unjust or 
or you know disproportionate <clears throat> has to be against me or somebody else who I, de- I identify with or something else who I identify with. Um, the sliding, he uses the word um, uh, phenomene, which means imaginary or perceived or something, like that, or even public, at two points in the definition. So it really highlights the uh, the aspect of um, you know our imagination or or our own interpretation of things. So things that might get me angry might not get you angry because you don't you don't perceive it as a slight. And so all of those are tied in with that. And he also says that you know there's pain involved, there's pleasure involved. Um, so once you know those sorts of things, you can start saying, okay, what? Why am I angry right now? Where's the slight that I'm perceiving? You know, yeah. and then Aristotle also gives us uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics and a little bit less in the Eudamian Ethics some criteria for what um, virtuous anger, if there is you know such a thing, mm-hmm. anger coming from a virtuous disposition, yeah. look like. It has to be, for example, directed at the right person. I mean, think about how many times we get angry at one person and then we discharge our anger on some other poor bastard who happened to cross us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or somebody who didn't even do anything to us. Um, we can recognize that as, as vicious, as, as something we, we shouldn't do. And, and that gives us sort of a, a guideline, not, not a very specific set of rules, but a guideline for like how we ought to evaluate our own anger and the anger of others and what we ought to be developing towards. Um, and then, you know, the, the Stoics... Uh, give us a lot of really great anger management techniques and insights. I don't agree with them on the notion that anger is always bad. Um, they, they, you know, were opponents of the Aristotelians on, on that. And then there's some some great insights coming from uh, various early Christian thinkers on anger. Uh, Thomas Aquinas has a really interesting insight in in saying that anger. Uh, and all of the irascible emotions have to do with what he calls the difficult good, which which I think is a, a interesting insight. Um, you know, and, and so we can go down the line. There's there's all sorts of interesting uh, techniques. You know, Plutarch talks, and Plutarch probably got this from an Aristotelian named Hieronymus, who wrote a treatise on anger. He talks about this idea of like bringing before the eyes, looking at what you look like when you're angry. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we could do that now quite easily with a cell phone, right? Just take a selfie mm-hmm. um, or record yourself when you're talking to somebody and you can realize how, how awful you, you appear and you wow. can say, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Um, so, you know, all, all sorts of examples like, like that. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's Plenty more, I'd, I'd say, but um, you know, another thing too to consider is some of the ancients had what we call a faculty psychology. Plato would be the strongest example of this, where you've got like you know the three parts of the soul, mm-hmm. and the central part is the part that should be courageous, but it's also the part that gets angry, gets riled up. It's it's interested in our social standing, and it craves honor or respect. Um, and anger, you know, whether we buy into a faculty psychology like that. By the way, Plato placed that physically here in the chest, mm-hmm. as opposed to placing the rational part in the head and the uh, appetites in everything below the chest, so the genitals and the stomach. You know, um, he does that in the Timaeus, right? Yeah. So obviously, we're not going to buy into that. <laughs> but we could say that, you know, I mean, where do you feel anger when you feel angry? I, I kind of feel it in here. There's, there's a good reason why um, the ancients thought that maybe it was cited there. Um, and so, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of useful insights. So long as we don't mistake what they were doing as, um, you know, science, yeah. uh, I think we're, we're okay. Well, science of their time. I mean, it was obviously with the best sort of tools and techniques that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you say was the most effective, if, well, let's say not most, but what were some of the most effective techniques for you in helping you manage your anger? Oh, um, so that, that running through the, the various rights that Aristotle distinguishes, and when I say rights, that's a translation of um, day, you mm-hmm. know, as, as something ought to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the modern conception of, of rights, it's more like uh, the conception of things being properly oriented. So right person, uh, right occasion, right reason, right you know, extent, 
uh, or intensity, right, right amount of time, you know, thinking about those things really helped me out because I could say, all right, I'm angry. Um, how long am I going to be angry? Yeah. Is this, is this really the right, right amount of time? Um, a lot of stuff from the Stoics for me has been quite useful. Um, realizing that, uh, um, oftentimes my own judgments or assumptions that I'm making are part of what lead me to be angry. Um, realizing that the, the other person, because uh, I've gotten into a lot of conflicts with other people who, who struggle with anger as well, and then you can get this kind of back and forth thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and actually one of the insights about that that's been particularly useful for me didn't come from ancient philosophy, it came from uh, communication theory. Huh. There was this book, um, Pragmatics of Human Communication, mm -hmm. and it looked at um, conflicts, and it talked about the punctuation of conflicts. So you know how you have a sentence, and it could be ambiguous if there's no punctuation, mm -hmm. and if you put in punctuation at one point, the sentence will mean one thing, mm -hmm. and put it in at another point, it means another thing. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. We can look at the temporal succession of speech acts in an argument the same way, and this is why both parties can feel that the other party is the one who started the argument. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a really helpful thing. Oh, interesting. So I think what you're saying is essentially that anger kind of, or at least not maybe all the time, but a lot of time manifests from misinterpretations of the actual scenarios. Yeah. Um, I would, I mean, I, I couldn't possibly come up with a percentage of how often our anger is off base. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, maybe is it ninety percent? I don't know. Is it you know thirty percent? Uh, I, I have no way of knowing. But uh, yeah, in a lot of cases, one person says something, and maybe they're already kind of you know ticked off to one to some degree. They're frustrated, right? Mm -hmm. And another person takes it in a certain way, and now it's on because this person now responds, and they respond in such a way that the first person is like, "What the hell? Why are you attacking me?" You mm -hmm. know. Right. And they both feel that they're they're the aggrieved party, and then you know it, it just ratchets up. And then once you start getting into meta communication about who's at fault in the argument, mm -hmm. um, in most cases, you know, unless unless the people have learned how to bring things back from the brink, you're you're really in, in deep trouble. Then, would you say that there's any technique um, in philosophy or in general that you might have learned to bring it back from the brink, as you said? Because uh, like one idea that popped up in my head, uh, just to be brief about it, is um, this concept of uh, seeking first to understand, then to be understood. So like you might say say what you think they said, and then ask them, is that what you meant? And then uh, then they might say yes or no, and then they might do the same thing you just did, ideally, and then maybe be able to kind of bring it back from the brink that way I, I don't know like is there anything yeah. like that or I mean that would be one way to do it that's that's if both parties are one, one of the problems with anger is that um, unlike many of the other emotions it tends to short-circuit or seduce practical rationality yeah. Aristotle recognized that in saying that anger syllogizes in uh, Nicomachean Ethics Book 7 meaning that it, it puts together thoughts in some sort of coherent way but it, it, he says it's like a hasty servant it hears half of the instructions and then goes off and, and starts doing them um, and anger tends to keep us from being able to apply cognitive remedies unless we unless we practice yeah. so I mean if, if the two parties had been practicing um, the sort of techniques that you're talking about um, this is why, you know, going to therapy and role-playing and stuff like that can be quite useful, right? Because mm -hmm. um, if, if you're only waiting until you're actually angry, it's sort of like, you know, imagining that you're going to go and, and, you know, perform uh, a dance, you know, when you show up at the recital, even though you've never practiced it. It's not going to happen, right? right. <laughs> or, or you're going you're gonna to wait until you go out on stage with your, your friends who are in the band, and it'll be the first time that you pick up your guitar. Yeah. Uh, you know, now, you know, they say, let's play this song and you're not going to be able to do it. So, but if you, if you do practice, yeah, you could, you could do things like that. I mean, you, you might also do things that are less dependent on the other person doing something. Um, 
you know, like you could remind yourself, like Epictetus does, right? So Epictetus um, says that you shouldn't get angry with people. Instead, if you're going to feel something, you should feel a sense of compassion towards them. Um, the Greek for that is eleos. We translate it as pity, but we could easily translate it as, as compassion. Mm -hmm. And um, the basis for that is realizing that they're taking the position that they're taking and they're saying and doing the things that they're doing because on some level they think that's the, the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and you could say, well, it's not the right thing to do. And so then, you know, that's why I'm, I'm pissed off at them. Well, you could say, well, it's not the right thing to do. And that poor bastard is stuck, you know, doing the same cycle of, of stupid things. Yeah. Now, you don't want to, like, come out and say, oh, you poor bastard. You can't <laughs> help but do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you could be thinking that in your head. And you might say, well, that's that's really, you know, demeaning or, or you know, um, uh, patronizing, right? Yeah. And it could be. I mean, if you could do it in a passive-aggressive way to make yourself feel good. Mm -hmm. Or you could actually say, oh, man, that person is really struggling. Um, it's too bad for them. Uh, I'm not going to add any more to this right now. Yeah. You know, um, Maybe we'll come and revisit this later, and I hope things get better for them. That's, that's another you know, thing that doesn't rely on, on them doing something different. And you can say, smart. well, yeah, but what about somebody who's like a complete asshole and they – they, uh, you know, delight in, in fighting with other people and stirring up conflict, you know, and they know that it's the wrong thing to do. They, they delight in doing the wrong thing. They say, well, on a higher level, they think doing the wrong thing is the right thing. And that's a sign of even being more screwed up, you know. Um, so that, that's, another, that's another possibility. And then, you know, I think another thing, too, is when we get angry, we're often getting angrier than we should be or more quickly because we think that the thing that we're getting angry about, like, matters most in the universe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and, and we could say, well, let's step back and take a little bit of perspective. Um, is it really that important that I don't get cut off in traffic yeah. by that person ahead of me um, so that I can get to exactly where I'm going exactly on time? Is that is that the most important thing in the universe? Yeah. You know? Um, and if, you, and if you apply these cognitive remedies, then it, it does tend to, to help. But it's not like an off-on switch where, right. you know, just say the right thing and, and like a robot you suddenly no, that's feel no emotion. It's one of those things where you got to fake it till you make it, right? Um, there's there's certain ideas like, like those cognitive remedies that you're talking about that um, I kind of try to use as well. I don't know if it's helpful or not. But like yeah. one thing, like for example, say you're getting cut off in traffic. Technically, like yeah, if you think it's the most important thing in the world, it seizes all your attention. You know, your whole being's invested in that. It's like a use of um, mental resources that you could be. You know, it's like it's taking away focus from something else that you could think of. So when I think of it yeah. that way, I tend to be like, oh no, what else could I be thinking about instead of this? And it for some reason stops me before that initial. Yeah. Uh, reaction of anger but that's just like I guess maybe that's for me in my own like no, but that's good, framework because I would imagine that for you you're like there's better things to spend my time and energy on well yeah and, and then there's like little there, there's like sayings I've heard before too that like for some reason like I resonate with my, maybe not everyone would resonate with like there's a saying of uh, the uh, and not to you know get into gender but there's this saying it's like uh, the size of the man is the size of his problems or something like that mm -hmm. so i've heard that before it might be like more of a self-helpy kind of a quote i'm not sure yeah. but <clears throat> yeah when i heard that one i was like oh no and then i noticed i was getting caught up in like little things <laughs> and i was like ah oh. so then <laughs> because no, it's of actually that, really good i like that yeah, yeah. so yeah that also would kind of steer me from the initial, I'd be like, oh, so does that mean like if I had bigger problems or, yeah. or at least or like a higher purpose, maybe I wouldn't get bogged down by these smaller things? Yeah. And then it got me thinking in other ways. Yeah. Well, for, yeah. for me, what I find that's really helpful for people is to depersonalize the anger. So the, yeah. So yeah. So the worst thing that kind of people can do is to literally interpret the anger in such a way as to say that this says that this person's rage toward me says something about me. So it's like let's say being kind of righteously angry. Let's say if we were to kind of quantify it, that would maybe put it at sixty percent, right? But if you were to kind of personalize it and say, okay, that this shows that not only that this person thinks that I'm unimportant. 
important, but it, it proves that I'm insignificant. What it does is it takes the anger to sort of exponential levels. So if you like, let's say, get cut off on the road and your interpretation is, okay, this person clearly thinks I'm worthless or useless or I'm not as significant. And I believe that, and this is sort of my core belief manifesting in this situation. What happens is I'm going to like rage down the road yeah, and yeah. I'm going to try to like fucking kill this person, <laughs> right? Because how dare they make me feel this way about myself? You know, Aristotle has a really interesting insight along those lines in rhetoric book two and it's, it's where he talks about um people making fun of something that we value so here it's not like people making fun of a person it's, it could be he talks about philosophy as one uh i forget the other examples but it could be like you know i i you know I'm really into the Packers and you, you say, you know, the Packers suck or you, know, <laughs> you, make, you make jokes about sports ball or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, where it gets really interesting is Aristotle says that those who are, who feel themselves less secure, and I, I don't remember exactly the yeah. Greek for this, but we can translate it that way, who feel themselves less accomplished or less secure in that mm -hmm. are more likely to get angry. Mm -hmm. So like if you make fun of philosophy, you know, and I'm some grad student fresh out, I'll probably get ticked off at you more than, than somebody like, you know, at my stage in the game where I'm like, oh, you don't like philosophy? Then I don't care, you know. Right. It's not hurting philosophy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not hurting me, yeah. right? Um, and so, so yeah, if, if I feel badly about myself, um, and this I think this extends a lot to the political domain and the economic domain and, uh, things having to do with uh, sexual attraction, mm -hmm. um, I'm more likely to, to lose control of my, my temper because in, in some way there's more at stake because there's less at stake, yeah. if, that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, because I have less of the quality or less of, of a mastery or whatever it is of the thing that's, that's being ah, gotcha. mm -hmm. denigrated, um, that little bit, you know, you're taking even that away from me. Whereas somebody who's like secure in what they do, you know, I'll, I'll give so I'll give you an example just from my personal life, right? I'm I'm overweight. Um, I, at one point in my life, actually for you know over a couple of decades, I was in really great shape. I used to work out like three hours a day, but that's because I was so interested in in you know body image and stuff like that and then after a while i quit caring about that then it shows right mm -hmm. and now i go to the gym as a, a 48 year old guy and <clears throat> you know i'm i've got some muscles but i've also got a belly and i do my best on on the the machines that i'm on and i see these these younger people around kind of preening and and uh peacocking <laughs> and um if it, you know at a previous stage in my my life i probably would have been upset you know, comparing myself to them, I don't care now, you know, I'm interested in living longer, making sure that I can, you know, get up and down stairs when I'm 80, right. and not be a burden to people. Um, and so, you know, I don't have any problem going in the locker room and walking around, however, or getting into a swimsuit, because I'm, I'm not I'm not bothered by it. But, it, you know, and somebody could come along and say, Oh, look at that guy, you know, I'm good. well, you know, <clears throat> Wait until you're 48. You know? <laughs> um, we'll see what you look like then. Um, but I think if I were, you know, if I was in that sort of situation and I was 28, I would have been really, really bothered by it. Yeah. You know, and that's maturity. That's yeah. literally what maturity is supposed to be, security within yourself. And I think that if maybe not all, because I can't say off the top of my head, especially not maybe the psychotic ailments. So for the most part, I think mental illness literally <clears throat> can sort of be traced back to self-esteem and low self-regard. Self that and, and a, a lack of proportion, mm -hmm. right? Meaning? Uh, well, not, um, not prioritizing things mm -hmm. in the right way or, or not taking things... You know, when when you when you when you catastrophize, for example, you're saying this outcome is so likely and it's going to be so terrible to mm -hmm. me. Um, if you step back and you have a sense of proportion, you can be like, well, I mean, I could get a flesh-eating bacteria, but right. how often does that happen? You know, right. I think I'll go swimming. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, yeah, to relate to what you were talking about before with the whole uh, body image thing, I you can't see me right now because of the way yeah. this is all set up, but uh, I used to be uh, 300 pounds once upon a time. Right now, around 170. Wow, and, that's yeah. a big change. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, I used to be really insecure about body image, and uh, but then um, <clears throat> through study of uh, not just philosophy, other other concepts, uh, other things in psychology, or uh, even some popular movies. Actually, you know what? I'm happy I just mentioned movies. There's sure. something I wanted to mention earlier. I just didn't want to okay. uh, interrupt. Uh, did you ever hear of the movie Revolver? <laughs> you love Revolver. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen it uh, a while back. Um, yeah, it, it's about uh, <clears throat> the ego in the movie. It's okay. a Guy Ritchie film. And there's this one scene, uh, Jason Statham's like starring in it. And there's one scene, he's in the elevator. And he hears this uh, voice in his head. And uh, he, he believes it to be him. Right, and he has a, co- a dialogue in the okay. in the middle of this elevator, and um, basically, just to make a long story short, through through this dialogue with himself, he realizes that he is not the voice in his head. Oh, yeah, and he has who, this who big epiphany. Oh, sorry, what'd you say? Who is the voice in his head then? It, it's like internalized others, or <clears throat> so the way that they framed it in the movie, they just um, simply just said that that was the ego, that that's yeah. just this voice that identifies with uh, beliefs or situations or thoughts or ideas. But then, like he was this kind of like uh, you could say like a witness to those thoughts, ideas, and voices, and so he kind of othered the voice in his head. And then had this like big epiphany that he wasn't like any of these things that he was um, uh, thinking about. And uh, when I first saw that movie, that actually made like a huge impact on me because actually, uh, you could argue it was like a paradigm shift. Like for for me, like I took so many things very seriously, all these like storylines in my head and things that uh, I believed about people and all that. And it just kind of, yeah, created this space. Um, and I don't know, I guess, uh, you ever see anything like that, I guess, uh, in movies or pop culture or, um, or things like, um, like that express, uh, ideas and philosophy in pop culture? Oh yeah. There's, and there's lots of things that express philosophical ideas in pop culture. I, I, I was thinking about that voice in the head thing. Usually the way the trope is done <clears throat> is it's more like a superego in, in Freudian terms, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like the internalized voice of mommy or daddy or your school teacher. And sometimes they'll have like the, the person have a little vignette. Of, <laughs> you know, the teacher is, you know, saying something mean. And then, you know, if they want to be really dramatic, they can have like the image shatter or stuff like that. And I, I guess that, you know, it's, it's a good, how do you portray these sorts of things in popular um, <clears throat> media? It's tough to do, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, really great philosophically imbued literature that doesn't translate well to the uh, television screen. Mm-hmm. It could if you had like super great writers, but those are pretty rare to find. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of... Um, I mean, there's all sorts of shows and movies that that illustrate philosophical themes in interesting ways. Um, I used to use some of them in my my classes because um, you know students love watching movies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, like you know, I'd use Memento to talk about the construction of the self and memory. Dark City was a popular one right after we'd watch some Descartes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could do The Matrix. Um, Matrix. Of course, you know, that's only like Descartes' meditations up to, to the very beginning of meditation, too, and it ignores everything else that comes after that. But I guess that's the way Descartes often gets taught. Um, I used to use the exorcism of Emily Rose oh, wow. in philosophy of religion classes because what was nice about it is you had a sort of like um, – hard science atheist perspective this is all bullshit you know thing and then you had this sort of um you know more nuanced social science perspective well it's part of certain people's culture and all that Mm -hmm. and then you had a a more um you know supernaturalist perspective from the the reluctant priest who doesn't actually want to believe that there there's a an issue and it's it's left up to the viewer to decide what 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 actually happened um and you know recently i mean we've been watching you know, we've been watching a, a, a few shows. We tend to save things up and then binge watch them, my wife and I, and then talk about them. So um, we've been watching this, this this one that came out recently called Years and Years, which is uh, 
you know, it's it's set in Britain and it's largely following this family and then this British politician who's, who's rising on a populist platform um, as, as the world starts to break down. And so it's dealing with a lot of interesting social issues and, and conjectures about what the future is going to be like. Um, what else have we seen recently? <clears throat> um, oh, yeah, we've been watching The Expanse. The Expanse. What's The Expanse? Oh, it's a, it's a great sci-fi series, and it's based on some books that I haven't read. Mm-hmm. Um, really well done. You know, one of the, the big challenges, if you don't mind me going off on a tangent. No, no, sure. no, please. Yeah, yeah. So, so one, of the big, one of the big challenges for any sort of fantasy or sci-fi show, and you see a lot of really good, originally good shows succumb to this, is the writers start out working off of some books and the books are very rich in the world building and the character development and the sort of philosophical and moral themes. Mm -hmm. And then they start to have to cut corners and simplify. This is what happened with game of Thrones, by the way, which, you know, by the end of it, it was pretty bad. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But but there, I mean, there were problem signs along the way and, and it's clear that the writers didn't know how to handle the, the source material well. Um, while they stuck close to it, the show was really good. They diverged from it. They started making decisions that that um, are understandable, but they make for not as good of a, a show. And and so one of the things they'll do <clears throat> is they'll they'll start making it much more character driven, and then they shift back into like standard tropes because that's what they figure the audiences want, and it starts to go downhill. Or they start. They succumb to the. We got to take on bigger and bigger and bigger enemies. This is what happened to the Stargate series, where they start out, you know, facing enemies and then defeating them, and then bigger enemies and bigger enemies, and pretty soon they're facing like something that can destroy the galaxy. Uh-huh. And uh, the same thing, by the way, happens in role playing. You know, where eventually you have to fight the gods. <laughs> um, and, and and so a lot of writers, they they just they don't see that coming up. And although some of the fans can, and they don't know how to write themselves back into better situations. Um, so, you know, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy stories on the screen just don't um, end up measuring up to what they, they could be. Yeah. With, with Game of Thrones, it's kind of, you know, kind of a weird situation because not only are were the writers so far off book they're already like way ahead of the book and mm-hmm. we're waiting for you know George R. R. Martin who's not in great health to hopefully finish up his his seven part series hopefully he doesn't so. even have book six out yet yeah. so he might die before it, it ends up happening um, but the, anyway the expanse so there's a set of books um, pretty well done uh, it's it's kind of similar. I don't know if you guys are into sci-fi, like classic sci-fi stuff. Like Star Trek? Well, I was going to say books. Like H.G. Oh. Uh, Wells? Yeah, well, the, the person who I who comes to mind the most for me is C.J. Chera. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She has this Alliance Union universe, and a lot of it is taking place within uh, the solar system. And you've got the people living on Earth, and Earth has gotten kind of screwed up. And then you've got like colonies on, say, the Moon, Mars, maybe other places. And then you've got the the asteroids, the belt. And uh, in this case, there's the asteroids, and then there's also like moons of Saturn and and Jupiter, where where humans have established themselves. And there's really three main political factions. There's Earth. Uh, run by the UN, Mars, which is independent and very uh, martial and into you know staying independent of Earth, and then there's the Belters who kind of get the short end of the stick from everybody, and then there's other you know players involved in it, and then there's this this thing called the Proto Molecule, which has um, come from somewhere else, some other race, um, and it does terrible things to people that it encounters. Um, uh, turns them into things, rearranges them, you know, and and they're trying to figure out what is this proto molecule, and um, can it be weaponized, you know, against uh, their opponents? There's a lot of like interplanet rivalry going on, and a lot of factions, and and it's and it's really well thought out, and it's really well done. We'll see whether after season three, which is as far as we've gotten, it keeps going as well. The Expanse, right? 
Yeah. I'm, um, yeah, I'm interested in seeing it now. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I mean, it, they could screw it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, actually, back to Game of Thrones, just quick. I, yeah, I know we're yeah. like running out of time, but one thing I wanted to say, why would they build up Jon for <laughs> however many, seven seasons, and then all of a sudden, at the end, they're like, okay, sorry, you don't get to be king. Actually, you go back to where you started, go back to the Night's Watch, and yeah. we're just going to make Bran the king. I was like, hmm. There's something wrong there. The, the, maybe it could oh. have ended up that way, but I don't think George R. R. Martin would have done that like uh, with his writing style for sure. No, and and uh, I mean where they ended up is so far from where the fifth book left off. Mm-hmm. It's it's basically it's its own its own animal. It's just sort of like uh, the the show is fan fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, Greg, our last question is going to be, why should we study philosophy? Oh, uh, there's, there's, you know, different reasons for different people. I mean, um, you might just have an interest in where some of our key ideas came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of filling in parts of the puzzle. But I, I think much more practically, it's good to study philosophy um, because it does equip you with uh, useful ideas and, and distinctions and uh, presents you with arguments about, about uh, fundamental issues, um, even if it doesn't give you all the answers that you need, which I think is pretty rare that it, that it does, it at least starts moving you towards um, a place where you, you could start answering the big questions for yourself. Yeah, I love that answer. Mm-hmm. All right, Greg. And Greg, if we, if we wanted to uh, follow you on Twitter, I believe it's at Philosopher70. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I picked that out uh, at a faculty development workshop. You know, again, I didn't. Most of the things that I do, I don't really think out very well in advance. I should have picked something kind of cool. You know? <laughs> at this point, it, it probably would be uh, to change is no. Yeah, because the amount of followers exactly. you have now, there's yeah. no point. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. And, and, and the amount of you. links out there, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. Well, I was also going to ask, where can we find you on YouTube? Oh, so if you just type in Gregory B. Sadler into Google, um, my, my YouTube channel, my main one will come up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think it's, I think it's probably YouTube slash GBI Sadler or something like that. Um, I don't use the link very often. Yeah. So, no, that um, works. Uh, if we Google Gregory B. Sadler, that, that works. And then we'll, we'll be able to see uh, the videos and a lot of other information about you as well. Yeah, and just kind of for our audience, guys, Greg has a really great lecture series on God knows how many forms of philosophy, from Stoicism to existentialism to I think you even cover postmodernism. So yeah, some some of uh, those, yeah. And, yeah, and a lot of what I'm shooting these days is actually for my online students. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm kind of constrained; I can't get to all the figures that I'd, I'd like to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. Maybe in time. People are always, when are you going to do Lacan or when are you going to do Derrida? And I'm always like putting them off. Oh, that would be really cool if you do Lacan. That one I'd be definitely Lacan, interested yeah. in. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, Greg. Thank you so much for coming on. It was on. a pleasure having you on. Thanks, oh, thanks for having me on. Thank you, man.